0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kat Zakreski, a tech policy reporter here at The Washington Post. And my guest today is the Facebook whistleblower who you might remember from Capitol Hill testimony in 2021, Frances Haugen. Thank you so much for being with us here today at Post Live. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. And so you and I first met on a video call much like this almost two years ago when you were preparing to go public as the Facebook whistleblower. Can you tell me a little bit about your book, The Power of One, and what message you hope Hmm. people take away from it?
1: You know, we live in a world today where our information environment is more and more mediated by algorithms that, you know, are actually quite new. You know, even in the perspective of, you know, since Section 230 was written, you know, our laws came from the 90s, largely about technologies that were developed in the 80s. Um, and now we spend a huge fraction of our, our time online on systems where information is picked out using systems that weren't even really used in consumer products until the nineteen uh, 19- the 2020s, so 20 teens, 20 teens, like 20, 2011, I think was the first year Facebook had an algorithmic feed. Um, and one of the things I, I wanted, I was hoping that people would take away from it, is I got to kind of see the arc of a lot of these technological systems. You know, I worked on search quality at Google in the mid 2000s. Um, I worked on, on ranking algorithms at Pinterest in, in those very early teen years um, as like recommender systems were becoming a bigger and bigger part of our lives. And then i got to be at facebook during the 2020 election and see how how uh do the consequences of these systems play out when we don't have transparency and oversight and so i hope people take away from the book that we have ways of making the system safer we we have to act now that we are running out of time in terms of allowing the status quo to continue onwards and probably most importantly you know this is not a book just about social media it's about opaque Technological systems. So, all the conversations we're having about generative AI, about large language models, um, those have lots of parallels to how we got in trouble with social media. You know, we can't inspect those systems, we can't hold those systems accountable unless we pass laws that give the public the right to know.
0: And on that point about AI regulation, President Biden is scheduled to meet later today with some consumer advocates who you've worked for before. Mm-hmm you've worked with before, Tristan Harris, Jim Steyer, and others. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, what should be the top priorities for the Biden administration as mm-hmm. they start to think about AI regulation?
1: I I, I know about that meeting. Uh, I'm in, unfortunately in Europe uh, right now. So it, it it it, um, it, 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 life is about choices and, you know, prior commitments, Um, I I think one of the major things we need to look at in terms of the risks of these AI systems is there are short-term high probability harms, and there are longer-term, potentially higher uh, magnitude harms, but with ambiguous probabilities, right? So we're spending a lot of time right now talking about hypothetical, hypothetical existential risks, This is things like, you know, the AIs are going to wake up and come after us. Um, And when we have very short term, very high probability risks like um, information operations, you know, we already struggle with the role that social media has in our information environment. Um, Once we have uh, generative AIs, you know, um, a big part about how misinformation works is. Truth has to exist in a very narrow corridor, you know, there's there's one consensus reality, you know, misinformation gets to play across the entire continuum of the information, uh, con- entire information continuum. Um, so they can have, you, you know, you can put an idea out there and it is exactly the catnip that like resonates with some bias you have in your brain. When you move on to having large language models, you know that AI can now produce ten thousand variants, hundred thousand variants, and find exactly the thing that is going to go most viral, and that's that's a really serious problem. You know, we we one of the major ways that we caught information operations at Facebook uh, was by looking at repetition. You know, like the same messages are being shared over and over again from the same sources. You know, in a world where you can have way more variation. A lot of those tools go away. And that doesn't mean that we don't have options. You know, one of the major projects I worked on at Facebook um, was something around influence modeling, like the idea that real humans have relationships with each other, that we influence each other. And you can actually pick that out in the data. You know, I write about it in the book. It's very, very hard to fake that kind of data, to fake real human long-term interactions in a way that doesn't stand out for being an aberration. Um, the thing, though, is tech companies don't have incentives for using technology like that. You know, every fake user you take off your platform makes your company slightly less valuable because you have fewer users. Um, and so the thing I would I hope that that panel will will talk about is we need to not sit in paralyzed fear. We need to be acting to make sure that we put in place incentives that encourage positive uses of these technology and decrease uh, the uh, the chance that these major problems like labor force dis- displacement um, happen in the short term.
0: And you've played a central role in the congressional debate about how to regulate social media. We're expecting Senate Majority Leader Schumer to outline his plan for how Congress can regulate AI tomorrow. But what lessons mm. do you think lawmakers can learn from their attempts to regulate social media as they set their sights on AI?
1: Mm, great question. You know, there's a lot of parallels. Like I mentioned before, you know, this is a book not so much about social media; it's about opaque technological systems. So that's, you know, in contrast, in <coughs> when you run Bust through you. a rainstorm right before you go on Zoom, like that's you got get yourself a cold. <laughs> um, when on, you know, for, for most of the 20th century, we had an industrial system that was largely inspectable. You know, we could go and put a sensor outside a factory and tell that pollution was coming out of that factory. We could take a product and run tests on it and say, oh, there's lead in this product. You know, we could take a car and we could crash it and say, This car is unsafe in the following ways. You know, the gas tank is misinstalled, and so this car is at risk for exploding. Um the uh, the thing about our modern times, and a lot of these AIs fall right in this bucket, we can't inspect them, right? That that uh, it introduces a real power imbalance when the only people who get to have, you know, get, get to grade the homework of these companies are the companies themselves. You know, they know everything runs on the data center, it's out of view. The only people who get to see behind the curtain are the tech companies themselves. Um, that's a that's a problem because as we saw with social media, companies cut corners. So the the most basic thing I always say is we need to have uh, rights for researchers. So you companies need to make publicly accessible research APIs. Um, We need to, if if your AI is not a a consistent experience for all users, you need to give ways of doing um, research on that, because a huge part of what happened with Facebook or in social media in general is that every person gets a different experience. It's much harder to do even basic accountability work on Facebook versus, say, Google. Um, uh, I think we need a consumer bill of rights, right? Like you should be able to know how things are personalized to you. You should be able to know how ads are targeted at you. Um, A lot of people are surprised at the idea that in China, you're allowed to know what ad, ad targeting criteria are being used to target you. But, you know, we don't have the right to know that. Um, I think there's some things where in where the, the European Union is, is going in a good direction in terms of transparency about content that is generated using um, AI. You know, if you're looking at an image, if you're looking at text that was written by a computer, you know, you should know that you're not having experiences mediated by another human, right? And then the last thing is I think we need to have a conversation about education. Like I think one of the places where um, we are at risk for really creating more of like a two-tier society is – you know, and and right now we have you know challenges with things like you have a kid with behavioral problems. It's very expensive to hire uh, a teaching aid to make sure that kid can be around other kids. Um, it's much cheaper to put them in a headset and have them go hang out in a metaverse classroom. Um, and I, I one of the things that I think is going to be a place where AI could be potentially very socially disruptive, and I haven't heard enough conversations about it, is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said, we're investing in AI to to enhance the metaverse. So that means is you can put on your headset and you can have what feels like an authentic relationship with this robot. Um, You know, that that has a a potential to be even more socially isolating than social media is today. And I worry that the people that we're going to push towards these kind of... um, uh, reductive social experiences are going to be people who are already marginalized in society. You know, instead of building senior centers or making sure we have senior outreach, you know, we'll put grandma in the metaverse. Instead of hiring that aide to make sure that kid can participate in school um, with, other, with other children, uh, we'll put them in a virtual classroom. And so uh, these are all things where we should be having the conversations now and not waiting 20 years to be like, oh, how'd that happen?
0: And you talked a lot during your experience whistleblowing about the broken incentives for social media and putting Mm -hmm. profit above the risk of hate. When you talk about those risks around loneliness Mm -hmm. and how AI might exacerbate some Mm -hmm. of those issues, how can we change the incentives so that doesn't become our new reality?
1: Great question. Um, the, so I think there's a couple of things. One is, look, before we even get to just the loneliness question, like what's the more generalized incentives question? Um, you know, one of the things that frustrates me is, uh, you know, OpenAI has spent more money on safety than I think basically any of the other big AI firms, right? Like, look at Facebook—they fire their their AI safety team and then open source their model, right? Like that—that's about as 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 different ends of the continuum in terms of increasing generalized risk to society, right? You know, uh, they, OpenAI could have gotten an even bigger head start and they chose to spend more time trying to figure out how to do the safety side, right? Facebook, uh, by, by uh, basically facilitating proliferation, you know, they, they increase the number of players in the space by, you know, 100,000 coders, you know, 50,000 coders, because they lower the, the, the bar to entry so much, um, you know, Right now, there's no market incentive for acting in a safer way. Like, safety takes time, safety takes money. Um, all those things are, are competitive disadvantages, unless you have a system that gives additional rewards for acting in a safe manner. And one of the things that I, I agree with Sam Altman on is that if you don't have conversations around incentives, you're going to be in a situation where, um, I, you know, if I'll give you an example, like the Fortune 500 c- could come out and say, hey, we as a group have decided we are only going to buy uh, products and services from companies that comply with a certain base bar of safety. Um, you know, if you're willing to, uh, you know, comply in a way that shows that you're being rigorous, we're willing to direct economic resources towards you. If you are not acting in a way that meets that safety bar, we go sell to someone else, right? Um, that's a way of incentivizing good behavior um, that is really meaningful because you will end up accelerating those good actors in a way that is 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 transformative. Um, but that doesn't happen accidentally. You know, you have to have proactive involvement from people across society saying, hey, we don't wanna repeat what happened with social media. We have to get out ahead of this.
0: And so on that point, because you bring up social media again, I know you write in your book and talk in interviews about how on the one year anniversary of going public as the Facebook whistleblower, everyone was asking, you know, what was the biggest impact and, and would you do this again? Mm-hmm. Um, but now almost mm-hmm. two years later, as we see things like the Digital Service Act coming into force, things like the Surgeon mm-hmm. General's warning on children and social media recently, I mean, what do you think um, was the biggest game changer mm-hmm. of the Facebook files? Well, I think the thing that I'm uh, most
1: personally proud of is um, I, one of the other things the European Union passed was whistleblower protections. So in terms of um, things that I think are sy- systematic um, uh, decreases of risk for society, you know, we, we need whistleblowers, right? Where when, when you have an economy that is run more and more by opaque systems... Um, the people on the inside become critical um, uh, mechanisms of public safety. Like when you look at what, I forgot the name of the organization, it's like, it's like the you know American Auditors Association or something like that, like financial auditors. Like they don't call whistleblowers whistleblowers. They call them sentinels, right, because they're the, like the first line of defense. Um, and so that's like the thing I think uh, um, I got to meet the woman um, – who was the Enron whistleblower, who did a huge amount of work around passing whistleblower laws in the United States. Um, And I felt it it, I felt honored to be part of her lineage because I got whistleblower protections because of her. And I look forward to one day meeting a whistleblower who got whistleblower protections under that scheme. But but the second thing is, you know, I, I really want to contextualize what the Surgeon General's warning means in the advisory means in the United States. There have only been like 10-15 10-15 of these advisories since the 60s, right? The, the, the things like uh, smoking causes cancer, um, seatbelts save lives, breastfeeding helps children. Um, these things are things where when, when I say them, people are like, yeah, duh, like cigarettes. We all know that. Um, but, But in the time period before those advisories came out, there was a great deal of ambiguity. And uh, one of the things that has happened historically when one of those advisories takes place is within two to three years after it, usually some kind of action moves forward. We don't know what that action will take. Will it be a class action situation will it be a law will it be you know who knows but usually society begins making movement in the time after those advisories come out and so uh you know if you had asked me two years ago um because i left facebook almost exactly two years ago right so i left facebook about um, uh, two years and one month ago i left facebook um i came out you know three months from now in the future um four months from now in the future um, but, uh, if you'd asked me, is the surgeon general going to make an advisory in the next two years? You know, I, I don't think I would have ever said yes, right? Like we were just not in that place as a society. Um, and so, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really cautiously optimistic about what's going to unfold in the next couple years.
0: And on that experience of whistleblowing, we have an audience question from Julie in California, mm-hmm. Who asks, have you experienced significant trouble getting work in the tech field since becoming a whistleblower? Mm-hmm.
1: So I uh, I think if I wanted to go back to being a data scientist, I don't think it would be a problem. Like I've gone, um, I would say, on the order of like five or six job offers, uh, all from uh, small social networks, like social networks that are trying to move into this space. Um, there's like one or two that if I thought we were in a better place, like from a regulatory framework perspective, I would totally go take that offer. Um, uh, just because like there's certain strategies for approaching safety. Like I, I worked on influence modeling at Facebook. Like I find that whole space super interesting. Um, I, and I, I, it's interesting, like I've had conversations with, um, fairly senior up people. Um, you know, I'm not talking about executives, I'm talking about director level kind of people at, you know, uh, companies that you know the names of, um, who have said, you know, people noticed that you did not demonize Facebook, right, that, that you tried to focus on what are the lessons we can all learn from how Facebook went astray, um, you didn't, uh, you didn't really point like other than other than Nick Clegg. Cause you know, I have opinions about Nick Clegg. In general, I try to be pretty generous with Facebook employees um, and, the, uh, and, and, and that even handedness, you know, it, I, I think it comes off as pretty obvious to most people that I'm not a malicious person, right? I, I, I'm a Midwesterner, like I, if I could go, like if I, if I didn't feel like we had a public, public crisis, <laughs> um, I would much rather be coding by the ocean right? I would much rather have a remote job and just live in Puerto Rico. Um, and so I don't think it's going to be a problem over the long term when I eventually am like, I've done this long enough, I would like to go go back to getting to play with my computer all day. Um, but uh, for now, the, this is what I'm working on.
0: And I wanted to ask you, though, a little bit about the personal mm-hmm. toll of whistleblowing. You write in the <laughs> book about uh, when this process was heating up and you sent a signal message to the person you had just started dating, kind of, you know, a- addressing yeah. how yeah. risky this was getting. And can you tell me a little bit about the impact sure. that this process had on you and your family?
1: So the the story I told in the book, so um, uh, I started dating the guy I eventually married, right? So uh, he's actually here in Amsterdam with me, like he's going out and getting dinner for us because, you know, I'm I'm talking to you all and I have to do another one of these things in a couple hours um uh, and we started dating like maybe 3 or 4 days before um uh, I came out on 60 minutes um uh and uh the day after I came out on 60 minutes uh we were sitting with a threat researcher like they were giving us kind of the briefing on you know who what are the people in the dark webs uh saying about you you know like should we get you you know private security you know that kind of thing and um We had not locked down my, so we'd locked down my social media. So we, you know, made it private. You know, generally tried to decrease my profile on the internet. Um, We had not thought to do it for my mom. So my mom is very, very active on the internet, and so the trolls had gone and trolled through all of my mom's social media posts going back years and years, years and years. And um, I texted I texted my partner and I, and I was or like, at that point he was my boyfriend of like five days. And I uh, was like, hey, like, you know, we'd had a conversation about how two of his friends had gotten married and had two people who said they would never get married. And in their vows, they had, if one day your path diverges from mine, I hope you take it, right? Like if your path to joy, if your path to joy diverges from mine, I hope one day you take it. And, and I've always really loved that sentiment because I think it's really about, um, valuing like your partner as an independent human being. Right. And, and I commented to him, I was like, Hey, you know, you don't know what you've signed up for. You know, like we could have stalkers, we could have paparazzi show up. God. Cause I was, I was, he had been my roommate. I was not just started dating him kind of thing. Um, you know, if at any point this is too much, you know, I'm not going to judge you if you have to bounce. And he said the most delightful thing, which I, I I still hold him to this day. He said, I'm not afraid of trolls. I am a troll. Um, and it's funny because when Elon Musk took over Twitter, um, uh, he had he had, had a bunch of troll accounts because he likes to troll Chinese information operations. You know, like everyone needs a hobby. That's what Alex's is. Um And uh, maybe a month into after Elon took over, all of his accounts got taken down because they should have like there's no reason why Twitter should have allowed those fake accounts to exist. Um, but, But but beyond that, it's crazy. None of the consequences that I feared happening happened. You know, like we never got paparazzi. And I don't know if that's partially because like I live in Puerto Rico and it's a little hard to get there. You know, we never had people show up and scream at me. You know, I have open DMs on Instagram and Twitter. You know, anyone can message me. You know, people don't harass me. Um, my email is open on my, my, my website. You can drop me an email, say hi. No one, you know, other. I, I have one person who I'm pretty sure is a little mentally ill who sends me conspiracies on a regular basis, but they're not, you know, they're not out to get me. Um, I've been incredibly, incredibly grateful that I have had a very easy whistleblowing experience compared to what many people experience. Um, And so I will will never, I will never complain about anything that's happened to me so far.
0: And on that note, I mean, what advice would you give for other tech employees who are thinking about blowing Mm -hmm. the whistle and coming forward like you?
1: So the thing I always remind people is you don't have to be visible, right? So for every whistleblower who you see like me, there's the uh, hundreds or a thousand whistleblowers who are very subtly working in the background. Um, you know, I came forward publicly, um, as I describe in the book, because like my lawyers were like, hey, you know, you poked the bear. Like there's, there hasn't been a whistleblowing incident of this magnitude, you know, since the at t whistleblower decades ago. Um, you know, you need to understand they know who you are and they can out you at any time. You know, so if you want Facebook to get to choose how to introduce you to the world, you can stay in the closet, but like, you know, you're rolling the dice. Um, I, you don't have to do that. Like most people are not gonna whistleblow at that magnitude. Um, uh, you can directly give documents to Congress. You can give documents to the SEC. Um, there, you, you don't have to be visible, but at the same time, you are one of the most vital lines of defense for the public. You know, for most of these technological systems, People can't see how they're operating unless people like you come forward. Um, and so I, I hope you never find yourself in a position where you feel like uh, people's lives rest on on information that you know that the public is is being that's being kept from the public. Um, but the 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 second thing is, if you do find yourself in that situation, I hope you find at least one person that you feel like you can be honest with. Because one of the things I didn't appreciate until I came out was that. Another way in which I had had a very easy whistleblowing experience was that I lived with my parents during COVID. That most people who um, become whistleblowers, you know, by the time they come forward, they they're they're really ground down. You know, they they live with a secret alone, for that that where they fear it impacts people's lives for often long periods of time, and and that is an emotional trauma. Um, And uh, because I lived with my parents, like during the whole period where, you know, what I was hearing at Facebook was very different from like what my lived experience was, um, I didn't have to wonder, am I the one that's delusional? Are they the ones being unreasonable? Um, I could just talk to my parents and be like, I saw this today, like, this doesn't seem right. Or, you know, my dad could come in and say, hey, like, you know, if, if you were the lowest level technician in my laboratory, So he runs like the place where all the blood work is done in a a hospital. Um, You know, if you're my lowest level technician, there'd be a sign in the elevator. There'd be a sign in the bathroom. There'd be a sign in your break room saying, did you see something that endangered patient safety? Call this number. Someone will listen to you. Someone will take you seriously. Like you have a Harvard MBA and you don't know who to call, right? You're working on national security issues and you don't know who to call. Um, And I think because I had that grounding, right, like I had two smart people who I trusted the judgment of who were like, what you're seeing is unreasonable. Um, It allowed me to act with more confidence than I would have otherwise had.
0: And on that point, I wanted to bring the conversation back to Facebook, which has recently had some major Mm. financial problems, has had a series of layoffs. Mm. Do you think that those cuts have intensified some of the problems that you exposed around content moderation?
1: A hundred percent. So it's on a couple different levels. So, um, so for just to refresh people, um, I, because this is, I, I, I'm amazed how there are certain things about me that are have still not penetrated large chunks of the internet or of society. You know, a core complaint in my initial Senate testimony was that we were being told that content moderation kept us safe, but content moderation, at least as it's done today, does not scale Right? So there's lots and lots of languages in the world. Um, when you make safety systems that are about picking and choosing which ideas are good and which ones are bad, you know, you have to go and rebuild those systems over and over again, language by language, regional dialect by regional dialect, changing topicality all the time. It's very expensive. Um, it we, Facebook just doesn't do it in lots of languages. Um, uh, in the year after I came forward, they invested a lot more in safety. Um, but in like they, I think that on they, they said they were going to double the amount they spent spent on safety, and I think they did. Um, unfortunately, Elon Musk came through and bought Twitter and showed that you could lose seventy five percent of your employees and there would be no consequences. So I don't want to wade into the debate about like you know pros and cons of Elon, but one of the things he did that has had serious consequences across the tech industry is uh he showed that you know you could make a significantly less uh, safe product you know it wasn't just content moderator or content moderation policies he changed. He fired the people who were looking for child predators who were looking for information operations who were looking for people compromising these systems um, and that, that that no because uh, we only require companies to report their economic, numbers this is profits losses the expenses that went into generating those profits but we don't require them to report their social ledger so this is the costs and harms uh that happen because of their products you can steal from the social side of the ledger you know not invest in safety as much not be as rigorous and because it's invisible all it does is it looks like your balance your economic balance sheet is more generous and, and Mark Zuckerberg has come out and said like, you know, the reason he, this is Facebook's year of efficiency and he fired lots of safety people, including the AI safety team um, I, I, is that, that you know, Elon Musk showed him you could do it. You know, he rip, ripped the bandaid off uh, proverbially. Um, and I, I really worry that it is an illustration of when we have critical societal systems that are opaque You know, they operate off in a data center where we can't inspect them. Um, We will keep seeing uh, as long as those incentives remain the same, as long as you don't have to report data on that social side of the ledger, you're going to continue to see an economic incentive to cut those corners.
0: And we have just about a minute left. And you write in your book that every reader can be a part of the solution of raising awareness and fixing social media. What do you want our Washington Post viewers today to take away? Mm
1: Hmm. Um, so I, I totally get, I want, I want to be sympathetic here. Um, so I'm a data scientist. When you say things to me like data set, you know, I get very excited because I would love to sit and play with that. Um, and I know I can sit there and be like, Francis, like, I, I, I just don't care about tech transparency. Like, like if you talk to me about, you know, child predators, you talk to me about misinformation campaigns, I care about those things, but like transparency, like, what do you actually get for transparency? Um, I hope one of the things that people take away from the book is that for almost any harm you care about on these systems? We cannot collectively, you know, that means uh, through advertiser boycotts, through divestment campaigns, through consumer boycotts, protests, uh, through class action litigation. There's a lot of different mechanisms we can use to pull these systems back towards the common good. But if we don't have transparency, we leave the platforms, and that includes things like big AI companies, we leave them grading their own homework, right? The floor, the floor of where we can begin to have a democratic conversation about how to move forward has to begin with transparency. Um, And so that's, that's the thing I hope people will take away, is that we have a chance to unleash a whole new generation of specialists. A whole uh, uh, era of conversations about how we want to live online, but we can only do that if we get to peel back the curtain.
0: Well, we're just about out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Francis, thank you so much for joining us today at Washington Post Live. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.